Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Enlorn podcast series. Uh, today, uh, we're very pleased to have a special guest. Wendy Erler will be joining us from uh, Alexion. Wendy is vice president and head of, corp- of patient advocacy at Alexion Pharmaceuticals, and she has a, a an entire a career's worth of history in in trying to make sure that the patient's voice is a central driving force uh, in in what we do in our industry, and um, and and as and I think her experience will be highly instructive in a number of ways. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much, Stan. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. So uh, I know a bit about your work history, but I don't know uh, anything at all really about. Um, the, you know the rest of your <laughs> the rest of your days. So why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, your how you came to be where you are and all that? Well, on the personal front, I um, had a really lucky upbringing in that I grew up with um, a father in the military, so he was career Air Force and a fighter pilot. Which, as a kid, it's pretty exciting to be on the flight line and and be up close and personal to that. But that meant that we moved a lot. So I've lived in you know many, many different places across the US and a few places outside of this country. But I think that part of my experience is so relevant to what I do today because I've spent my whole life being the new kid in town and connecting with new people and getting to know new communities. And it's always been really important to me to really join a community versus come in and try to change anything. So. Um, Grew up in the Air Force, went to college in Ohio, and pretty quickly out out of college, decided I wanted to be in pharmaceuticals and industry with one sheer personal purpose of really serving patients in any way that I could. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting history. So, did your I, I uh, did your dad uh, happen to fly the F thirty five or? Uh, uh, anything like that, or maybe that's a little. He's 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 no longer on the flight line, I imagine. Not now, but um, we were in the F one eleven. He flew F fifteens. We were in A sevens for a while. So a lot of different aircraft. And to um, quote my dad, each and every one of them has its own personality. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. No, that would have been nifty. Maybe I can hit you up to get get on get in one of those planes one of these days that'd be really cool uh, so so uh so i know you've been interested in the patient's voice uh but um why don't you walk us through some of the your early experiences in the industry and how those those experiences uh you know shaped uh, to an even greater degree your interest in trying to be sure that we focus on the patients in our industry. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. And and I was really lucky to join our industry at a time where I think drug development was just really experiencing quite a renaissance of science advancing and understanding what patients needed. I started my career at Glaxo, and it was a small company at the time, and we had a lot of innovation. Um, during my tenure there, we launched very common medicines today, but things like Zantac, Zofran, and Oncology, which treated um, pre-chemotherapy emesis and hyperemesis in pregnancy. So 
a drug like that actually enabled patients to then be treated for cancer because they could tolerate the medicine. So innovation happens all around us. And I then was really lucky to land in oncology at a time where research and scientific understanding of oncology was just such at the forefront of science. But more importantly, how patients were able to tolerate therapy, how patients were able to continue to work while they were on therapy, and the surround sound of experiencing life with a condition that could be treated. And kind of, you know, started to put my finger on some of the company decisions that were being made, not just with my company, but others, seemed to be very focused on getting our messages out and our products out and less focused on what do patients and caregivers really think is important. And so when that idea started to crystallize in my head, I looked to leaders within my organization to find ways to actually think about how do we bring the patient voice in. And that's a really, it's a concept today that's talked about it a lot, but this time, you know, in the early 90s, I wouldn't say it was talked about as much. And then something happened externally that really brought this to life in a dramatic way. And one was the HIV movement and the other was pink ribbons and breast cancer. And suddenly patient communities seemed to be really activated and had a place where they could voice what they needed and what was important, whether it was legislation or drug development. And I, that all clicked for me that I had an opportunity to help bring those voices in and really find roles and find organizations where that mattered and could impact and drive decision making. Yeah, you know, I think uh, people don't really understand how important the, um, the HIV uh, patient movement was in establishing patient advocacy and I think changing attitudes across the industry and at the regulatory agencies as well. And, 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 and as a result, I think we've seen um, just tremendous growth in the power of the patient groups to influence decisions both in companies, but also in the regulatory agencies, not just in the US, but around the world. And influence for all the right reasons, right? And if, if we think about the impact of having a devastating diagnosis in a family, and then what happens next, our patients and caregivers are really the only people in this ecosystem that didn't choose to be here. They didn't go to medical school typically. They're not trained. They're not being paid to be in positions to be involved in this. It's a diagnosis. It's the most critical times of their lives. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into this role of patient or caregiver. So we have to give them the platform and the opportunity to have their voices be heard. You bet. And so at Glaxo, of course, uh, it was almost entirely in those days, small molecules. And then I, I think you went off to IDEC, so now you're in monoclonal antibodies. Um, uh, and from there, at, at some point, you end up at WAVE, so now you're in, uh, you know, ASO therapy. So I don't know whether you planned it, but you've, you've now had experience in all the major platforms for drug discovery, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And such a privilege, right? But I think the other thing that happened during that trajectory um, was that I was really, really lucky 
to begin to work in rare diseases. And um, IDEC merged with Biogen, so we became Biogen IDEC. And I, most of my career up to that point had been in oncology and working with oncology patients. And Biogen had this um, kind of unknown pipeline in rare diseases. And I was so lucky to get to work on um, an asset for ALS and really get involved in the ALS community. And that's a community that, you know, the diagnosis is uniformly fatal. There, there are no meaningful treatments that are really changing um, life expectancy. And that community had very clear directives on how they wanted to be involved in trial development, what they expected from therapies, and very vocally against placebo, for example. So really had to engage with the community and work with them and able to bring a clinical trial program forward. We also had um, a partnership with Ionis for Nusinersen. And again, I, I literally stand one morning, was sitting in my office and a woman called from California and it was 8 a.m. East Coast time, so 5 a.m. her time. And she wanted to know why our clinical trial had an age limit for newborn babies. And her baby missed the cutoff by two weeks, two weeks. And that then set me off on a tra trajectory of really wanting to learn and understand the ethics around trial design and frameworks of things like enrollment criteria. How could you say no to somebody whose baby was not eligible and then definitely not going to live from the, a disease like SMA but within the ethical constraints of trial design and what we were trying to do for the broader good. Um, and as a result of that experience, when I got to Alexion, I actually set up an ethics advisory board. So we have five external ethics advisors that we engage about once a month on a wide variety of topics. I think that's a really important innovation. As you know well, um, I was responsible for Spinraza and consider the decision I made to treat the, the first group of patients probably the scariest decision I've made in my career. Spent uh, many, many hours talking with parents who were in similar situations and always regretted that there were really no sensible solutions to get these babies treated earlier. And uh, particularly as we look back now, we know that if we are able to treat SMA infants before they become symptomatic, the majority of them grow up like normal, healthy children. Always had my heart broken about the patients, the parents, and so on, who just missed that opportunity. And the answer to, to that in the end is to do more research and get the drugs made earlier and better. But it was a, a grand journey. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, you said that the word fear, and there is a there's a huge responsibility we have in drug development, and particularly in rare disease with families. It's so personal, and we know these families. But there is, it is drug development is hard, and it's scientific, and it has to be rigorous. And so there's also an opportunity for us to just be as transparent as possible with patients and participants in the clinical research process so they can better understand how we and why we make the decisions we do. You bet. It, I think it's not understood at all by the general public that we're really the only industry um, that's ever existed that is a part of our day-to-day -day life, have to make decisions that could affect the lives of other human beings and do. 
and and that concern about the potential do, of doing harm has an extraordinarily powerful influence on on everyone in our industry and increases the emotional stakes and in, to a, to a level that I don't think you can really appreciate until you've really experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so um, after uh, you also then spent uh, a few years at Wave, a, um, uh, a newer uh, Anasense company that I think, um, you know, I take justifiable pride in thinking that the space exists because of the work that we did at Ionis. Um, so that gets you into the third platform and the platform that we are using at Enlorem. Uh, I'm interested in what you think you learned out of your experience in the three platforms and, and you, know, you know, some very different companies. Wave was a much smaller, newer company than Biogen or IDEC or certainly Glaxo. Yeah, so really good question. And um, I Wave and the opportunity I was presented with at Wave are um, really a height of my career. But personally, I'll share with you why I made the decision. I'd spent 14 years at Biogenidec and literally loved what I was doing and working in some very um, important disease areas and working with you know mentors like Al Sandrock and you know big big scientific experts. But I had an opportunity to interview at Wave and the CEO and the um, SVP of business development said to me, and this is really relevant for this conversation, we have this very exciting platform technology called Antisense Oligonucleotides. We had a stereo pure approach, so a little bit of a, a unique difference in the way we were doing the chemistry. But what they said to me, Stan, is we want to get to a place where we can serve N of one rare disease patients. And I just, my world exploded in, can you imagine if we have a technology that's flexible enough that we could serve N of one, you know, hundreds of patients, but one patient at a time, I wanted to be a part of that. To the point where I left that first interview and I sat in the parking lot and I called my husband and I said, I don't care what this offer looks like, I want to work with these people. And so I, I took the leap and to answer your question, I think there's something really special about Antisense, and I was so lucky to learn about that approach because you can do a lot of manipulation in the lab where you're not implicating patient tissues and patient blood and doing these things that really, you can do a lot of the experimentation in the lab and get a pretty clear direction of travel so that you have an understood kind of safety profile maximum dosing and some of those really important questions largely confidently figured out before you go into people and we really had an aggressive approach to accelerate going right to phase two phase three versus this long decade plus trajectory of drug development and that really excited me because no one in rare disease has time to go through the typical drug development process Let's move on to Enlorem, which uh, is a nice segue, thank you. Uh, and um, Alexion, um, um, late last year, early this year, uh, gave us an extremely generous donation, and uh, I know you were instrumental in that. 
why, why don't you tell us about how that came about and why you think that's so important for Alexion to be doing at this stage? So I'll start a little bit at the beginning of my career at Alexion. I joined the organization over three years ago and really came to Alexion because of the opportunity to, in a meaningful and tangible way, not just embed patient centricity, but build frameworks and organizations so that we could change behaviors internally and really organize and deliver on making decisions around patient needs. So there was a very big opportunity from a leadership perspective to design these frameworks and build the organization to do that. And to me, that was game changing. This was a company that wanted to, in a legitimate, measurable way, say, we want to be patient-centric. Here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. Here's how we're going to invest to do that. We are a rare disease company, and we work in ultra-rare diseases as well as um, kind of bigger rare diseases. And Alexion is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Um, But there was a keen opportunity to really be clear about what we mean around patient-centricity. So I started, as I said, about three years ago. I've built an organization with capability in patient advocacy, as well as leadership in organizing around global patient insights to drive decision-making. We have some very unique and special programs that we've developed. One is called STAR, Solutions to Accelerate Results for Patients. That's an innovation accelerator where we bring in all of our cross-functional colleagues and external patients, stakeholders, physicians, payers, et cetera, and break down silos and just in a really design thinking way, how do we choose those moments that matter where Alexion can have an impact in patients' lives and develop solutions quickly to serve those moments that matter? And then we have another program called LEAP that is a simulation program where we have our employees go through a simulated experience of what it's like to be a patient and walk in their shoes, receive a certain diagnosis, and then start on that journey. We have a um, program in development right now for LEAP that is focused on what's the clinical trial experience like. It's not really about blood draws on the day of the clinical trial visit. It's everything that it takes a family to get ready to go to that clinical trial visit or consent for a study. So this LEAP experience is to have our employees understand what are we really asking from patients and families if they join a clinical trial. All of that being said, I was in the right organization at the right time that when I had a chance to get to learn about Enlorum, we as a company at Alexion, we are committed to supporting patients and their families affected by rare diseases, full stop. Not just our rare diseases, but rare diseases. So it was really important to us to make this donation and to continue to support Enlorum's development of individualized medicines for one nano rare patient at a time. And why are rare diseases important? There are so many reasons. There are so many unsung heroes in rare disease. But fundamentally, research on rare diseases is really important because it can lead to the discovery of other things we need to learn and other components that may be affecting common diseases and then aid in developing even more effective medicines for other conditions. But I also really believe personalized medicine is the future. And that's what Enlorum fundamentally is going to deliver personalized medicine. Yeah. 
And so you uh, um, went to your CEO and said, "I've got a deal for you. I can you can give some money away to these uh, <laughs> to these to these crazy people pioneering this uh, nonprofit model." You know, I was really fortunate to have an organization where I felt that I could do almost just that, Stan. So I did. I talked to our CEO, and I, you know, really, your story is amazing. What N. Lauren wants to do is incredible, and I think all of us should be a part of it that can. And so I was able to have a conversation around, we've agreed as an organization that our commitment is to rare diseases. We want to be a leader in rare diseases. And then what does that look like? If it's solely focused on advancing our medicines, then that is still very self-serving and not as patient-centric as we want to be. And he was completely aligned with, this is work. The work that N. Lorem is doing is work that matters and is important for rare disease patients. And if this was a way for us to be a part of it, he was fully supportive. That's wonderful. Well, I look forward to getting to visit him. I've, I've known Mark for a, a, a bit in his various iterations of his career, so I'm sure we'll get to that one of these days. As I describe in our presentations, N. Lorem industrializing this process, and I think that's critical because industrializing means that you assure the highest quality at each step and that you're capable of expanding to meet the needs of not just a, a few hundred or one, or, but many, many thousands to actually millions. And, and I, for me, and Lorem has been much, very much uh, like returning to the practice of medicine. It's that intimate one patient, one family experience at a time that is um, rewarding in a very different way from you know what what I've done in my career in the industry. And you're certainly right that there's an incredible amount of knowledge to be gained in what we're doing. This is a unique enterprise. I do think of it as a core of discovery, uh, both for the mind and and it's certainly for me a core of discovery of for the heart. Every day is a core of discovery for the heart for me. With your experience, I think we're going to lean on it a lot in the coming years uh, as we develop our podcast series as a part of the patient empowerment program. I think every time I talk to you, I learn a little bit more about how I should do that and how we should do it uh, better. And so I'm looking forward to involving you in all that. Yeah, and I'm honored to have the opportunity. And you know, Stan, as I hear you speak, I think so much of this is fundamental to human interaction, right? We're really talking about a relationship building business. We're talking about listening and learning. Um, I had a woman reach out to me a couple years ago, and I'm not sure how she got to me even. And her daughter was diagnosed with an ultra rare disease. And they you know, went through that trajectory of shock and grief and, and confusion and very quickly got to the place of, we need to understand this, we need to invest in research, we need to look at drug development. You know, when you engage with people like that and and so much of the responsibility sits on their shoulders, how can we alleviate some of that? How can we break down some of those barriers? It's a whole new language and a whole new process of fundamentally trying to get make connections in academic institutions or with regulators. And so I, I think it's a little bit of a relationship business and how can we help people make those connections and break down those silos. And the other thing that I'm so impressed with and Lorem, and I'm interested to hear you talk about industrialization because the way I think about it too is we're organized to deliver the results we get. 
And by that, I mean, if you don't have the infrastructure to work fast and to get answers and to, you know, figure out the compliant legal way to get things done, we're just going to continue to do things the way we always have. And you're building an organization that's knocking that all away and enabling this very rigorous research to move quickly. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I've been so tremendously impressed with the people I've met who have no training of any sort in the, in the sciences, not, not a bit, who managed to learn so much and, and ask the right question, which is always the test of whether you understand something. And I'm hoping that both both the interviews that we're doing and the podcast series and the and the sort of lectures that build from the basics on up will really help people shorten the time and energy they have to invest in learning how to, how to think about this so they can focus on themselves if they're the patient or they can focus on their child if their child is the patient and um and and so we're working at it and there's just not enough of us and not enough time every day to make the kind of differences that we'd like. But, but over time, I think we're going to do that. And you're building community. And I think that there's a support network too, just in having a place for people to be heard that's so important. Yeah, I was stunned at the isolation of the nanorare patient. They just, there is no community if you're the only person who has a mutation. And so, I, I do think one of the functions that we're taking on at NLORM is that creation of a community of nanorare patients, even though they may not share the same mutation, they share the same challenges to life and to the and to a family that comes yeah. with all this. Any anything uh, that I haven't asked that you'd like to say to nanorare folks who are are listening? Just one last thing that I don't think we touched on, but is really important is I think what compelled me to really do everything I can to support Enlorem is the actual opportunity that Antisense brings to the table. So we talked about some of the other small molecule monoclonal antibodies, but there's something really unique and special about Antisense because of the regulatory pathways. And again, a lot of this is about, you know, changing the ways things have already been done in the past. And you've set the stage to be able to do that with Antisense. And um, that's something else I'm really excited about. As am I. It's uh, one of the, there was one of the many reasons that I founded Ionis thirty years ago was I realized long ago that the industry was dying because it is non small molecule drug discovery just isn't efficient enough and and you really can't learn much. It changes things and with Anasense we know the rules and we've really uh, taken the technology from a blank piece of paper to where it is today and it is unique extraordinarily efficient and rapid and versatile so without technology of course there's no way we could be even thinking about this and that again is this convergence of basic science in genomics and the work that we did in Anasense coming together at this moment when we're beginning to learn that the nanorare mutation in a nanorare patient is actually a vastly more common event than we realized even two or three years ago. We're glad to be in the forefront of that and, and driving the model. Yeah, and the only thing, you know, given all the world events and everything that's happening today, and Lorem is servicing the world. And that's, I think, really important too. These families are, they can be anywhere. It can be anybody in any race in any country. And so really thinking about that responsibility for patients across the globe. 
Well, it's an awesome responsibility that I've had the privilege of participating in and sharing for more than four decades. And this is the best possible conclusion to a career that I could imagine. And and one of the big pluses of it is I'm spending much more time meeting all the other people who who share the heart of, of this endeavor. So, Wendy, th- thank you very much for joining us today. And more importantly, I thank you for all of your efforts on behalf of patients of all type, uh, and now for the patients that, that we're focused on in, in Lorem. It's great to have you on board, and we're, we're going to be depending on you in a, a lot of different ways. Thank you. Thanks thank you. so much, Stan. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.